Wonder how that woman came up with her cool idea and turned it into a business? Listen in to find out how. Welcome to Women Inspired. I'm your host, Linda Ugalow, and on this show, I speak with entrepreneurs, artists, healers, and change makers about what fires them up and how they put their dreams into action. And I have as my guest today an author, speaker, and founder of DYI MFA, and it is Gabriella Pereira. Welcome here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, what is DYI MFA? So DIY MFA is the do-it-yourself alternative to an MFA in creative writing. An MFA is the Master of Fine Arts, which is the degree you would get if you were to do a master's degree in writing. And the idea is to help writers get the knowledge without the college. Ooh, I like that. The knowledge without the college. <laughs> That's great. And why do you feel like this is important? Well. This came from the need that a lot of people are hungry for education, for knowledge, especially in the arts, and it can be incredibly expensive and also inconvenient if you happen to have a family or a day job or you're not geographically located anywhere near an MFA program. And this is true in writing, but it's also true in other areas of the arts. And so I guess this whole project came about as a way to give writers options. I'm not necessarily anti a traditional MFA. I just think that it serves a very narrow niche of writers extremely well. And then the rest of the writers in the ecosystem are kind of left out in the cold. And so the hope I have is to help those writers find their own way to cobble together what they would otherwise get at an MFA program. So are the people that you're talking about the the individual who says, I always wanted to write a book? Or is it somebody who identifies themselves as a writer and they just want to pursue the, the writer's life? It, it's a combination. It depends. Some writers come to DIY MFA and they've never put a pen to page or finger to keyboard before, like seriously before. Um, others are deep in the trenches writing their first novel, but they're kind of going, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm kind of stuck in that slump, the muddle in the middle, which is where a lot of writers get lost. Um, so it kind of depends, but the idea was to give writers options because the rigor that you get at an MFA program was not necessarily available. There are a lot of great workshops out there, but they're often short, of 10 weeks or a semester. And to give writers like the tools so they can build that MFA style of learning into their lives for the long haul. And they can continue that for months, years in the future. So how would you describe what the MFA style is? Well, the MFA generally is built around the workshop model. And this is actually where I tend to quibble with the MFA model a little bit, if I may hop on my soapbox for a moment. Um, I worry that when writers, especially when they're very new to the craft, when they are thrust into a workshop environment, they are then forced to learn retroactively. They basically learn to become better writers by making mistakes and then being told what the mistakes are and fixing them. That's what a workshop is essentially, right? You bring in your pages, the teacher reads them, the students read them, you hear what all the problems are, and then you fix the problem. That's all well and good if you have that foundation and you already know some of the basics. But when you're first starting out, that can be soul crushing to a new writer. So the 
workshop model, I think, is particularly problematic. So with DIY MFA, we strive to give writers that foundational aspect of the craft first, and then show them how to find those workshop components down the line, either through critique partners or through mentors or through a writing group or something like that. Mm -hmm. So what do you see as the basic components of like starting to write? What would you wish that everybody started out with? Well, I think when you're starting out, you need to have three things in your life. You need to have, you need to write. And that's like the biggie, right? Like that's, that's the, the biggie you that's the biggie. <laughs> I mean, a lot of writers, I can't tell you how many writers will, you know, when they first discover DIY MFA, tell me, my biggest hurdle is sitting down and writing. And I'm like, I know, I'm right there with you. Like that's what most writers, like the big hurdle is. And it's unbelievably hard given that we're writers and we're supposed to want to do this, but it's still hard to do. So you need to have that daily practice, or if not daily, at least regular practice of writing. And then understand the craft itself, the craft of storytelling. I personally ascribe to fiction and like narrative form is sort of my favorite. So understanding how stories work, how characters work, how the mechanics of that operates on the page. If you want to write more prescriptive, how-to type of stuff, it's a different format, but you also need to know what the conventions are, what the mechanisms are. Um, and then you also need to read. The other big bugaboo is when writers don't actually read the thing they want to be writing. And I actually committed this problem or this sin myself when I first started writing. I was trying to write very literary highfalutin fiction. And I kept wanting to read young adult fiction or children's books. And my voice on the page kept coming out like an 11-year-old, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and at one point, my, I was in a, one of those local writing uh, workshops and the teacher said like Gabriella why don't you stop trying to write like a grown-up and write like the 11 year old and I'm like I can do that and so then I did and that that sort of opened up whole new doors for me so the reading is a big component as well so you're saying read in the genre that you're writing in not just the genre but like read the stuff you want to be able to write so Sometimes people get very locked in to like the genre and kind of slapping labels on themselves, but instead read the stuff that really speaks to your soul. And that's the, like, it'll feed your writing in some way down the line. Mm -hmm. Now I'm curious, what does writing to an 11 year old sound like? Oh my gosh. I mean, it, it's hard to, to say what that sounds like, but I can, I remember one of the short stories I wrote started with a phrase, the dog was dead, and I guess that was kind of a problem. So like that was kind of the voice in the story, and it went on. Just very straight, conversational. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. Do you have kids? I do. They are not 11. They're not 11, <laughs> not, not yet. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. You're practicing. Yeah, we're working our way up there. I just have to channel my inner 11-year-old. Mm -hmm because we were 11 once. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing with writers who want to write for kids, you kind of need to channel who you were at the age that you're writing for, because mm. chances are that's really who your audience is. Mm -hmm. So do a lot of people who want to write children's books come to you? Children's books 
or a lot of the sort of genres like romance and thriller because those tend to be the avenues that are not as well represented in the traditional MFA. And the children's angle is in part because I went to an MFA program in children's book writing. Mm. One of the few MFA programs I think in the United States that specialize in that area or that offer that specialization. Mm, Where was that? At the New School Uh in New York. York. Excellent Mm -hmm. program. I had a wonderful experience. I always want to couch the the DIY MFA model by saying it has nothing to do with having had a bad (laughs) MFA experience and then I sort of responded by creating this thing. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's a it was just simply to offer options because I recognize that a lot of writers out there might want this but not be able to do it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of uh, people who want these genres that may not be offered in a more traditional exactly a lot of the traditional mfa programs focus on literary fiction poetry creative nonfiction, kind of the stuff you'd see in like the fancy literary magazines which is all wonderful stuff but not everybody's writing that mm-hmm. yeah so what is your vision for this program like in the long term like or like, where is it going for you or for the people who come in? So in terms of my, my vision for where I see DIY MFA going, I see it applying beyond just the writing because I think the same rubric that applies to creative writing can apply to the arts overall. So the three main pillars at DIY MFA are writing, reading, and community. I already talked about the writing and the reading a little bit. And the community is sort of what you get built in when you do a traditional MFA because you've got your workshop and you've got your school community right there. For writers who are kind of foraging on their own, they kind of need to learn how to build that into their lives. Um, But if you think about it, writing is really just creative output. And that applies to any art. Reading is just the way that we as writers take in sort of the work from those who have come before us. But you can also take in work that's come before you in photography or cooking or theater. And then the community is just the exchange of those ideas, the creative exchange. Mm-hmm. So you see this as branching out into create for creatives of all kinds. Exactly. Hmm. I would hope, right? A girl can dream. (laughs) Yeah. So you haven't actually made the the steps to create that yet? Not yet. At Mm -hmm. the moment, DIY MFA is very firmly planted in the writing realm. Mm -hmm. Because that's the realm I I know. Right. Right. But you can see the the further applications. It's interesting what you say about, um, like, sitting down to write. I have my own struggles writing. I'll, you know, fully admit. And I recently came across a practice that has helped me a lot, but I'm not doing it every day. (laughs) And the practice is to have like a journal open on my um, computer, and I just write whatever is on my mind about writing, like, I get all that stuff out, and then I say, okay, I'm ready now, and then I go to the page where I'm writing. And I set the timer for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, and then I see where I am. If I need to go back to the journal, I go back to the journal, write a little bit more about what I'm feeling in the, about the writing pro- process and going back. And so far, it's, it's been really helping me get over that hump of, oh, this feels like such a big thing. I don't know where to start. You know, I think that a lot of people make writing and creativity way too big a deal. 
Like a lot of the work is just getting out of our own way. And I see this with my kids all the time. Like you see a three-year-old or a five-year-old, they have no problem being creative. <laughs> my son can write stories that are pages and pages long about, I don't know, whatever comes into his head. But I think as adults, we, we kind of are taught that self-censorship mm -hmm. and that then creates these sort of boundaries around our creativity. And I think a lot of what we need to do is, as writers, as creatives, is start learning how to knock those things down. So if the having the journal open is your way of knocking down that barrier, go for it. Mm -hmm. What are some ways that you see people using? Well, I think what, I mean, I can talk about the ones I use. Mm -hmm. I like to play. I think as long as something feels like it's play and like it's fun, then it automatically becomes easier for me. I am not a masochist. I do not want to inflict pain on myself. So I really don't desire to do things that are not fun. So I try to make the writing fun. And so things like, you know, rolling dice. Every so often I'll be writing something and then I'm like, all right, I don't know what to do. Odds I do this, evens I do that. Roll the dice. There you go. And then you see where it takes you and it suddenly becomes a game that you're playing with yourself. I love that. I love that. The <laughs> idea of creating it as a game, which, create, as you say, creativity is ultimately based on play. Exactly. Which is not hard. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, I think that the tie to playfulness also comes from the fact that I began my professional life working in the toy industry. So that's sort of been my, like, it's been in my blood. And I wanted to design toys since I was like two. And that was like my dream job until I went and worked in the toy industry and decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur instead. But um, yeah, it's, so I think this idea of just play and making games out of things, like for me, that's always been the natural inclination. Mm -hmm. But for other writers, it might be more the soul searching and the like, let's journal about it. And that's like, you need to find the thing that's right for you. Mm -hmm. Because my method might not work for everybody. Right. Whereas I might find the, the journaling kind of fun. Exactly. Yeah, which I do. <laughs> Whereas if I had to journal, let me tell you, I tried those morning pages and all that stuff did not work. Mm -hmm. The fact that there's the word morning in morning pages already is just like a no, no deal for me. <laughs> Get out the dice. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I, it's, if I have to do this in the morning, there's no way it's going to happen. So when do you do it? Uh, my writing, mm -hmm. it's just throughout my day. Mm -hmm. I mean, my day is writing, whether I'm writing stuff for DIY MFA or I'm sneaking in. I, I do some stealth writing where I like sneak in some fiction writing because, you know, I'm supposed to be doing work. And that also makes it fun, right? Because then it's kind of like sneaky, like, ooh, I'm, I'm stealth writing my fiction right now. When you're supposed to be working like on your business? Exactly. Uh -huh. Working on like something real, like writing an email or something serious. Uh-huh. And you get to do this instead. Exactly. It's fun. <laughs> so you bring up children and play. And obviously, we were all children and we all played. Do you feel that we are all creative beings? And, or what are your thoughts about that? I, oh, absolutely. I think every single human being on the planet is creative. I think most of us have it squashed out of us, um, and that's incredibly unfortunate. That to me is something that if I can help rectify that, um, then I feel like I can die happy because I think it's, it, it's just incredibly sad how many people, like you ask people, like, do you think you're creative? And they'll say, no, I'm not creative, or no, I could never be creative, or, you know, especially adults, right? Like, oh, I could never do that. That's too creative. And it's like, well, no, you were a kid. You could do that all the time. And you didn't have to 
even try. So it's, yeah, everyone's creative. And how do you, how do you feel like, do you feel like um, the, the people who say that they're not, is that a problem? Like, do you think we have to acknowledge ourselves as creatives? What are we missing? I think, on one hand, that's tricky, right? Because people should, like, they, they should be who they want to be. But it's the same way as, like, if you don't, it's like seeing the glass half full versus the glass half empty. After a while, if you're always looking at the glass half empty, you're going to start to feel kind of down. And I think that people who, I think people who say they're not creative are saying it in sort of a self-deprecating way, like that they couldn't achieve that. If they were saying it in a, I don't want to be creative, and they were owning it, I'd be like, man, go for it. Like, that's awesome. But most of the time, it's coming from that place of, like, inadequacy. Like, they're not enough. Like, they're not creative enough. And even people who are incredibly creative will often act like they're not creative enough. I mean, I feel imposter syndrome all the time. I felt it before coming on this show. So I think it's natural for people, even when they are very creative, to feel like they're not enough. But that's when you do need to sort of shake your, you know, shake out those thoughts and, and, and claim that spot at the table. Mm -hmm. So what is imposter syndrome? Maybe not everyone has heard that term. It's that feeling, and I think a lot of creatives have it, but I think most people have it. I know parents obviously will have it because I have it as a parent all the time. It's that feeling that you're an imposter, that someone is going to find you out and that you're not really the real deal and, oh my gosh, someone's going to find out that I'm really not a good mom and that sort of thing, or I'm really not a good writer and that people are going to, and that feeling of anticipated judgment is mm -hmm. the imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. We all kind of uh, sit with that sometimes. Yeah, what, what's your remedy? What's the remedy for imposter syndrome? That's a tough one. I mean, I think knowing that you're in good company always helps. And the reason I know that imposter syndrome, that everyone feels it, is because on my podcast, I interview authors all the time. And some of these are big name authors, like, you know, number one New York Times bestselling authors. And they will say on the show, like, yeah, I worry sometimes that my next book might not be my best or that I won't live up to the book I just wrote or something like that. That's all imposter syndrome. And if these really big name authors are feeling that, then, you know, well, me, I, I can I can be okay with that, with mm -hmm. my imposter syndrome, too. Mm -hmm. Just know that it comes and it goes. Exactly. And that if someone else feels it as well, then not only do you feel like it's you're not alone, but then you also know that you can overcome it. Mm -hmm. And what do you think the, the process is for overcoming it? So to overcome imposter syndrome, I mean, really what it comes down to, I think, is is mindfulness. Like for me, I one of the things that kind of broke open my creative process was beginning to understand where my mind goes and sort of the same mindfulness practices that you would do if you were studying meditation or something like that. So one of the mindfulness practices is, you know, being aware of where your thoughts are going. And so a lot of times when I feel those imposter syndrome thoughts coming on and I I, I remind myself that, okay, this is, this is normal. 
I'm feeling it. Don't like I don't try not to sweep it under the rug. I did that for a long time. Did not did not work out so well. And instead, try to redirect those thoughts and say, okay, I acknowledge you. Now let's like move on to the next next thought. And sometimes I have to redirect that imposter syndrome thought like 30 times in a given morning, but eventually it fades away and I can get back to work and do the work. That's the other big thing is when I feel imposter syndrome and adequacy rear its ugly head, I try to sit down and do the work because sooner or later you get so in the thick of it with the play and the fun, you're in the moment and you forget about all that other stuff that we're piling on because our thoughts are going. Mm-hmm. That crazy stuff in between our ears. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, that kind of gets in the way of us doing life. Exactly. Doing creativity, doing play. Well, I think creativity and art and writing, it's more a head game than anything else. And that's one mm-hmm. of the reasons that I feel a lot of writers will say, oh, I'm not a good writer. Or a lot of people who don't think of themselves as writers say, oh, I could never do that. I'm not a good writer. Or I got really bad grades in English class at school. I think talent accounts for about that much of like success in writing. Mm. The rest is the head game, the mind game. And a lot of us are really good at telling ourselves that we're not good at stuff. And the people, oftentimes the difference between the people who succeed and the ones, you know, who get published, who write books, who build careers as writers, even if they're not super best-selling writers, and those who don't, isn't the difference in like an enormous amount of talent. It's just that the ones who succeeded stayed at it and kept working. And the other ones said, oh, I'm not that good, and they gave up. They succumbed to to the thoughts, the negativity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so so you feel that everybody is an artist at heart. Absolutely. And if everyone could, if people could open up to their, that part of themselves, what do you think would happen for them? I think people would be happier and the world would be a happier place. I think if there would be more joy because creativity is a joyful thing. And I know when I'm in the middle of creating awesome stuff, that's what I call my job, building awesome stuff. That's what I do day in and day out. That's on a good day. Like on the days when it's drudgery, it's not that. But if we're focusing on building awesome stuff and then sharing it with people who are just as nerdy about that same awesome stuff as we are, that's pretty joyful. And that, I think a lot of people will be a whole lot happier. The other piece of it too is that you don't have to quit your J job and all of a sudden like say, all right, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna be an artist and that's how I'm gonna find my bliss and my joy. But you can build that joy into your life by doing the art that you love. And, and that can counterbalance even if your job isn't all that exciting and it's mm. just kind of run of the mill and it pays the bills. Mm-hmm. So art, okay, let's, let's define art or artists because some people might say, well, I don't paint, I'm not a writer. I don't play a musical instrument. Like, can you broaden the topic for people? So people say, oh yeah, I do do that. Oh yeah, I, I do do that. In my mind, I think of it as making stuff. If you can wake up in the morning and 
cook something, that is more than what I can do because I can't follow a recipe. If you can bake, oh my gosh, you are my hero. Because I last time I baked cookies, I was 11 and I broke my brother's tooth. So like that, that's the last time you made cookies. Yeah, I, I can't bake. Like after that, I was like, I cannot bake anymore. We need to put you in remedial school for <laughs> I baking. Know, seriously, <laughs> like if my school, if my high school had had home ec, I would have totally failed. I would have flunked out. It would have been horrible. And and even so, yeah, cooking is a way of making things. I'm an avid craftser. I love knitting and crochet and things like that. If you make things with your hands, that is art in my world. And I find that this highfalutin definition of art as being like high art versus like something that's craftsy. Personally, I like the craftsy stuff because that's when you're in the thick of it. And it's not like, you know, all the ideas around your art. It's about just making something cool. And so, yeah, I see all of that as art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and today it's even broader, I would think, because there's so many, so much online design. Exactly. So you could, if you make websites, if you have a really awesome Pinterest page, if you have like really cool graphics that you create or YouTube videos or what have you, if you're making stuff and sharing it, I think that's the key is making it, but not just hoarding it. I think some people will make things and they hoard it, like they write their journals, but they never share anything with the world. That's different. That's for you. I think art is when you share it. Like the creative mm -hmm. process is a shared process. Really all the time. I feel like there has to be a point where the other person is invited in. Otherwise, what's the purpose of the creative process? It's just an internal thing and it, there's no recipient. It's like a story isn't really a story until someone reads it. And the act of someone reading your story becomes an engaging, it becomes a conversation between the writer and the reader because the reader might interpret it differently than the way the writer wrote it. Whereas if you're always keeping your art safely behind a curtain, then you're never inviting that conversation. Mm, so you're inviting people to open the doors and let your art out and invite other people to interact with it. And I'm not saying that you have to like, you know, post sketchy photos online or anything like that. Like, you know, keep, it doesn't have to be like completely opening the doors to everything that's private. Like you don't have to post your private journals out into, you know, a blog, but it's about curating what you share, but actually sharing it. Because I think a lot of people get hung up on like that hitting the publish button or putting their work out into the world. And a lot of times it's not because the work isn't any good or that they don't think the work is any good. It's because they are afraid of sharing it. There's mm -hmm. that fear that's holding them back. Mm. Well, I've got a wild card pick that I would love for you to reach in and draw it and just tell us what it means to you in your business or your life. So I picked inner authority. Oh. And this is interesting because the word authority is a problematic word for me because according to, well, most people who know me well know that I have a really big problem with authority. I mean, this is why I run my own business. This is why I, I don't do well with having a boss. I don't do well with having to answer to people. And so the idea of having inner authority and having to answer to anyone, even if that person is me, is a little uncomfortable. 
but it's still important, I think. I think at some point we have to look inside and actually see, like follow our instincts and sort of follow our own natural drive. So for you, it's about following your own natural drive and instinct. Yeah, and, and being okay with the fact that that might actually be a little uncomfortable. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing all of your insights on the show. This has been a fascinating talk today. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. So thank you for all. Thank you all for coming on and listening. As you may know, I am a coach. I help people get comfortable speaking either on camera or on stage. And if you've got some kind of project or presentation that's coming up, you may be interested in downloading the Fear to Fabulous Blueprint, Mastering the Inner Game of Speaking Live or on Camera. And you can get that at www.lindayugalow.com forward slash blueprint. Hope to see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to Women Inspired. The show is recorded live in the studios of Bedford TV in Massachusetts. Music courtesy of Sheik Ghanim. If you like this episode, please leave a review or comment. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or watch all the TV episodes of Women Inspired with the show notes and links at www.lindayugalo.com forward slash TV.